It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. I hope you'll check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com that you'll rate, review, and subscribe to this one. I've appreciated some of the ratings and reviews you've been putting on recently. Uh, thank you so much to those of you who've been taking the time. Today, we have a conversation for you with Trey Gowdy, who is obviously familiar to you as a voice and commentator on Fox News and also obviously the host of his own show. He's someone I became familiar with originally as a member of Congress. And so we talk about the business of Congress, how much it's been out of sorts in recent years and also the challenges and the political ramifications of the indictment of former President Donald Trump. He has his own perspective on what's going on there, and I'll give a little bit more of my own perspective after we have this interview. Trey Gowdy, coming up next. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Trey, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. I am delighted to be with you, and I hope I'm not overdressed. (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. Uh, We... uh, I enjoy the opportunity to not have to put on uh, the the uh, TV garb whenever given the chance. So uh, I think you should make use of that. Uh, Trey, I know that there's a lot of folks who are, you know, familiar with uh, your background to a degree. Uh, but I think that I'd like to start by just asking you, you know, you've had kind of this weird experience of being in politics and in a time in which uh, a lot of the presumptions about norms and the different things that kind of went into being successful in politics have been upended from the national perspective. What has it been like to see that, that kind of transition from the old school of politics as it used to run to this new school? And how much has it really changed? Uh, or is it stuff that you think is more about kind of the surface, the, the media communications part of it? where the old fundamentals are still at play. Well, Ben, I have to confess, uh, before I ran for Congress, I'd never served in a legislative body before, had no idea how it was supposed to run, which may be an advantage because you you can't really get disappointed when you have no clue what's supposed to happen. I, I can tell you, based on what I used to do in a courtroom, which you know, a lot of people think there's got to be a lot of acrimony in a homicide case, especially death penalty cases. There's more civility in in a in capital litigation than there really is in a GOP primary, in terms of how I define civility. the The headwind, and again, you know, I was unhampered by realistic expectations. I, I did not have that tethered around my neck. The way success is judged in politics now, at least by the media, is the number of bills you pass, which is pretty antithetical to conservatism. Um, So I I never really figured that out. Uh, The media headwind was the most surprising and disappointing 
part of my eight years there. And then towards the end, it was a fame had become the ultimate political virtue. It was not hard work. It wasn't character. It wasn't reliability. It wasn't even whether or not you were smart, however that's defined. It was whether you're famous. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I got to confess to you, Ben, I mean, I, I met people that, I, that have changed my life. I met the guy that will preach my funeral in Congress, assuming he doesn't kill me, assuming he's not <laughs> responsible for my death. That will be Tim Scott. So I feel terrible saying that maybe I wouldn't do it if I had to do it all over again. But it was not a good fit for me. I don't do well in an environment where the rules and the process doesn't matter, just the result. It's just It just doesn't fit my eye. Mm-hmm. And so I could not in good conscience encourage really anyone to get involved in the current political uh process in this environment, which is a devastating thing to say, but I couldn't do it. I could never encourage you to run. I think you have a bigger platform where you are. Um, And honestly, speaking for myself, between doing it and talking about it, talking about it is much easier. Yeah. Doing it is actually hard. Well, one of the things that I think is so uh, sad to hear about when it comes to that kind of thing is that it seems like the incentives are really out of whack now that people are measured according to those different aspects of fame uh, and that accomplishment when it comes to actual achieving real change or shifting things within uh, the way that government policy works just doesn't seem to be something that's a priority at all. I know that there are a lot of different factors that go into it, but from your own perspective, what are the major driving forces in terms of getting to a point where members of Congress are rewarded more for basically being, you know, hype men or being glorified pundits, uh, as opposed to actually doing the job that they were supposed to do in the first place. Well, I probably will get fired for answering this question. Um, uh, but that's okay. Honestly, I have survived longer than anyone thought I would in television anyway. So I, I think, Uh, There are members of Congress who wake up and try to figure out how they can get on certain shows at night. That is their their dominant goal. How do I either get mentioned or get on? And so I think there are these rare exceptions, uh, and I'll show my bias towards two. Jim Jordan, nobody worked harder than Jim Jordan. Nobody prepared harder than Jim Jordan. I mean, you can like him or not, but I'm telling you, I witnessed it. The guy's a really hard worker. You may disagree with everything he did, but but he puts the work in. He and Radcliffe. So their fame, their um, notoriety was really in direct proportion to their work. There are other members of Congress who are not even on the committees of jurisdiction. They haven't spent a minute prepping for the deposition of Jim Comey or for this hearing or the Bob Mueller hearing. They haven't spent a minute, but they're available to go on from X o'clock at night to Y o'clock at night Mm -hmm. and talk about what other people have done. Mm -hmm. And Ben, there used to be a world where we really wanted to hear from the people who actually were digging the ditches. You know, I mean, tell us what it was like to dig the ditch. Yes. Now it is, well, tell us what it's like to watch your friends dig the ditch and then tell them how they should have done a better job. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, quite candidly, television and media 
has driven a lot of it. You know, I think that that's true. One other thing, though, I think is it seems like we have just a, a Congress that is so much weaker than the one that was, uh, you know, that it was intended to be uh, historically, and certainly one where individual members don't seem interested in doing the work necessary to convince their colleagues of of a particular aim or a particular strategy to achieve that aim. Um, they seem more likely to go on TV and essentially use that power uh, to uh, yell at their colleagues, to try to cajole them into place, or to uh, try to undermine them in a way uh, that will eventually force them into taking some position. And it, and I think that you can see that in a number of different you know fights that play out uh, with regularity in Washington. My frustration is I don't see a path out of that uh, in in terms of the current moment in terms of the current uh, uh, factors involved that incentivize such behavior, I don't know what, you know, step one, step two, step three looks like to get back to a functional uh, branch of government when it comes to the Congress. Do you have any ideas on that front? Or is there one thing in particular that you think could potentially make a difference in terms of those incentives for new members who come in? I do. Um, and this will prove to you how hopelessly naive I am. Uh, things will only change when uh, the primary voters and or general election voters demand that it change. Politics reflects. It reacts. I mean, I, we hear the phrase political leaders. <laughs> there are very few leaders that go into politics. They are very good at taking the temperature uh, as it already exists, but not all that good at trying to change the thermostat. When will it change? It will change. I used to tell people in my district, you know, you don't like the way people act. Quit donating to them. Well, we have to do it. You know, we have to have a seat at the table. Okay. Well, then there's no disincentive. And it used to be, we want you to vote a certain way, but also act a certain way. It is now pretty much, we just care how you vote and how you act. Um, We kind of minimize it. So, it will change. You put your finger on something, Ben, and I'm not surprised because you're a smart guy. You put your finger on something. You could argue the legislative branch was designed to be the most powerful. You can argue that. Um, I think you could argue that pretty successfully. It is by far the weakest branch now. It's not even close. And it's true really on both sides. I, I remember when President Trump was elected, I was doing an event with Tommy Cotton who used to be in the House and, and then went to the Senate. And we were speaking together in Washington. And I said, this is the perfect time for us to depoliticize oversight. Because it's not one team doing oversight over the other, ignoring all your own flaws and sins. This is the perfect time. But you know what, Ben? There is no appetite. There's no appetite for Democrats to provide oversight over the Biden administration or Republicans to provide oversight. It's really party politics now. It's not branch integrity. So I don't know when and how appropriations. We complain. We go to court to try to get subpoenas enforced. We do all this. You've got the ability to control the funding, but they will not do it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that happens, of course, is that you know you you get the results, obviously, of the kind of people you support, you give uh, that you give money to, that you 
uh, engage with and that you choose to send to Washington. You know, the outcomes, I think, can be fairly predictable. But they also uh, tend to be at odds with what you hear from the voters in districts. And this is true across the country. Um, you know, whenever I'm, uh, whenever I have the opportunity to go to a, a new state, a new uh, district, and go there and talk to the voters, they'll complain. Uh, they like their local member usually, uh, and but then they'll say, "But you know, the problem is that you know Washington does this and Washington does that, and why aren't we getting answers about this? And you know, why haven't they you know got, gotten down on the folks who did all these different bad things during COVID? That's something that I hear across the country, and I hear it from people who are left and right. You know, it's not like there's just you know uh, a, a one side that has questions about that." And yet those same voters feel very frustrated. They feel like nothing is, is going to change. And they keep sending the same incumbents, for a large part, back to Washington. So in terms of trying to convince those voters that they need to have uh, uh, a different input or a, or a different attitude toward membership or what they should expect from it, you know, how can they have a clearer idea of what to expect and how to ask for it, of how to you know, drive actual change? Because what we've seen in election after election, you know, the the, the Clinton uh, election in 92 was a change election. The 2000 George W. Bush election was a change election. 08 was a change uh, election. And obviously 16 was a change election. And you kind of pulled the brake on that uh, in, in 20. Um, but obviously, again, that was something where people maybe felt like things had gone too far in one way. But it just seems like over and over again in, in Congress as well in the, in the midterms, Voters demand change, and then they're frustrated two years or four years later, feeling like it didn't change the way they wanted it to. How does that get disrupted? Well, again, if you're looking for evidence that this guy is currently unelectable and therefore will never run for office again, it will be in my answer to that question, which <laughs> is, I, I, I understand that we want change in certain realms. Is government really the way to change that? Mm -hmm. And are your expectations realistic? When I hear people ask why Congress hasn't put the following people in jail, I don't want to say it makes me want to pull my hair out because I actually don't want to be bald. Uh, it, <laughs> I my hair, man. It, it, that's, it makes me actually want to fix it, which I don't do. Yeah. Congress, as you know, has no ability to put anybody in jail for anything. So yeah. if that is your goal, as that is your expectation, you're going to be wildly disappointed. Yep. How about we start with this? You mentioned COVID and the the waste of money. Look, I can remember Republicans arguing for more individual COVID payments. In fact, I can remember it right before the Georgia Senate runoffs. Yes. <laughs> It'd be helpful if we were consistent. That would be helpful. And if you or I were trying to get to the bottom of what happened with the COVID money, can you think of a way that's less calculated to do that than me saying, okay, Ben, you have five minutes. Use your five minutes. Me, five minutes. I don't know why your wife, my wife can't order in five minutes. I can't order <laughs> anything in five minutes. Five minutes to unlock the mysteries of some really important issue is just, it's not serious. Mm -hmm. It is not serious. Mm -hmm. So, are your expectations realistic? And then do your members have the tools to do what you want them to do? I watch people, even some of my friends would go on television with John Durham, speaking of high expectations that were not met. Yeah, They're going to be indictments. 
I can assure you there are going to be indictments. People are going to go to jail. Well, first of all, you're saying that without having any clue what the evidence is. That's usually not a good thing to do. And then fast forward two years, and it's the most underwhelming thing in the world. And the few trials they do have been, they lose. Yeah. So punish, I don't mean like punish by incarceration, but hold people accountable when what they tell you is not rooted in reality and they cannot or do not do it. That would be a good place to start. Well, if you want to talk about you know an experience in terms of uh, divorce from reality, the number of people in America who've been uh, wanting to see uh, future president, then president, now former president Trump uh, in handcuffs and an orange jumpsuit has been enormous. Uh, and, you know, as much as I have been one of those voices, as, as you have been as well, uh, kind of telling folks, pump the brakes, uh, you know, you that's not the way this is going to play out. And your your hopes of achieving some end via this, that, or the other, you know, latest thing to go boom on Twitter, you know, uh, sorry, sorry, my Democratic friends, you are not going to, you know, you're going to have to beat him. <laughs> and and that's something that I've been saying, you know, now for uh, years, now we finally have this indictment uh, in New York. Seems very politically motivated from the outside. Uh, certainly, it seems like something that uh, you know a year ago uh, seemed quite unlikely, but now has been kind of pieced together uh, in a way. And it seems like something where I mean, even I was listening to NPR the other day, which is something that I do on occasion, and uh, and they seemed very skeptical of, of, uh, these charges. Uh, you know, certainly they, I think there are a lot of smart Democrats who had more hopes for things coming out of Georgia or, or other ways of going after the former president. But looking at the situation as we know it, where we do not know the details of this indictment, where we do not know, uh, the, the fact pattern that is, that is, uh, actually going to be applied here, but to the degree that we do know the, the various elements and facts going on, what is your assessment of it, and how do you think it's changed? Because this is something I've heard so many people talk about on TV. How do you think it's going to change the way that prosecutors, district attorneys, attorneys general, other officials across the country start approaching the prosecution of their political partisan opponents? Well, I hope you. I hope your podcast is a couple of hours long because you also put your finger on. I mean, you could argue that the justice system is kind of the one, or was past tense, the one remaining institution that we kind of. While we weren't fully confident in it, we have O.J. Simpson, we have the first Rodney um, Rodney King verdict, we have other verdicts, Casey Anthony, that made us kind of say what. Mm-hmm. But you could argue that it hadn't been fully politicized. It's getting tougher and tougher to argue that now. Uh, New York, the feds took a pass on that fact pattern for a reason, um, because they thought there were witness credibility issues or there was a lack of jury appeal or, God forbid, they, they you know all conduct that is not right is not criminal. So maybe they said, look, the, the conduct wasn't perfect, but it doesn't rise to the level of a crime. We can't meet the elements of the offense. So enter a prosecutor who, been on day one, was kind enough to let you know all the laws he didn't consider worthy of enforcement. So if you're a Republican and you're watching this, you're thinking, okay, I hear the phrase anti-democratic a lot, 
In fact, I hear that showing a voter ID in Georgia is anti-democratic. You can't show an ID to vote. What about a guy who summarily says, I'm going to undo the New York penal code with a memo? Mm-hmm. It, I wonder if anybody thinks that's anti-democratic. <laughs> so resisting arrest, no longer a crime. To him, shoplifting. And interestingly enough, prostitution. Paying someone for sex is no longer a crime that Alvin Bragg cares about. But God forbid you pay someone not to talk about that sex afterward. That is worthy of the full weight of our office. I'm not surprised. I mean, George Soros or whoever is behind these progressive prosecutors, they figured out we can either control the entire legislative body and control which laws are, are made laws, or we can control the people who enforce them. Why don't we go after the one rather than the 200? And it is, this is when things will change, Ben. When Republicans begin to hold Republicans accountable, when Democrats begin to hold Democrats accountable and say, look, we share a label, but this is not right. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you're an exception to that. I have heard you critique Republicans uh, in a way that possibly hurt their feelings. <laughs> but, but you're the exception. It is usually, you know... <laughs> Do you know Patrick McHenry? He, yeah. he, he, uh, Patrick, when I first got, he's a wonderful guy. When we first got there, he said, my old way of doing things was I saw a fight, I jumped in the middle, and then afterwards I would ask, what was that about? Mm-hmm. All I needed to see was the color of the jersey, and I hopped in the fight. Well, why what about saying, hey, is this the right fight? Ahead of time, I am. I understand people don't like President Trump. I, I, I do understand that. Um, wanting to see someone imprisoned. And this comes from a guy who used to put people in prison. I, I never chanted, lock her up. I don't think we lock people up uh, based on the chance of a crowd. I hope we don't. Mm-hmm. Andrew Gillum, they were chanting, lock him up. And as fate would have it, he was investigated. He was indicted. Uh, I think he was convicted. Yeah, That's the way we do things. We don't chant first and then go do it. You, you find out whether or not there's a factual basis. I, I always thought it was the weakest of the four investigations, New York, wrong prosecutor, wrong fact pattern, legal hurdles to clear, and you are, it is not going to take much for some Republican attorney general or Republican district attorney to say, you know what? I, too, can become a household name. Let me go indict Hunter Biden or Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton or fill in the blank. And then I'm telling you, Ben, when you have a system that ignores the law and all you see is political color, then you don't have a justice system and you don't have a country. And that's the thing that infuriates me about this situation, because if, if the incentive structure is such that you need to indict him if you can find anything, anything at all, any way of seeing... Your, your way through it. It doesn't even matter if you win. You will become a household name. You will raise money. You will ascend within the political ranks. You know, you have to understand those are incentives that apply to both sides. <laughs> and that's the thing that I think is so short-sighted about this and so uh, wrong about it in terms of an approach the way that we understand uh, the roles of government uh, because there are so many people across the country for whom those same incentives now exist. Uh, and if they see the other side do it, in fact, people will be in their ear, and I think they already are, saying, you've got to do the same thing to them. 
Um, and when that starts happening, and I think it will happen, the ramifications of that for our republic are very dangerous, I think. Um, so how, how can we avoid that? Because it doesn't seem like there's a, a large incentive for Democrats, civic-minded Democrats, and I don't mean necessarily political centrists. I mean, I, I think that you know, civic-minded people can be pretty far on the left. You know, uh, I don't think Bernie Sanders wants to see this kind of thing happen. You know, deep down, I, I doubt that. You know, there are a lot of people who, uh, you know, care about the the republic and care about you know sort of our institutions enduring that. Uh, that do want to see this kind of thing happen, particularly given that, you know, at least from the analysis of some people, uh, you know, who do this for a living, you know, this is something that boosts the chances that uh, uh, former President Trump is not just the Republican nominee, but, you know, could potentially even uh, help him get back into the White House. That's so far away, I don't like making any prediction about it. But do you think there is any kind of, of presence, any civic-minded presence within our body politic that can say, wait a minute, if we go down this road, then it's Pandora's box and, and it's, it's not going to look good for either side. Hey, can I let you in on a very tightly held secret? <laughs> yes, please. I actually have a podcast on Fox. Yes. Very, very lightly listened to one. So you would be understood for not knowing that I have one. <laughs> But I did my very first podcast, very first one, and they let me talk about whatever I want to talk about. I talked about fairness and what happens when fairness is no longer a virtue. And so if I were to treat you unfairly, Ben, then in your mind, not only are you a victim, not only are you angry, I really think you recalibrate whether or not fairness is even a virtue. And maybe it gives you license to say, okay, it's kind of like, you know, Edmond Dantes and the Count of Monte Cristo. I mean, the guy was treated manifestly unfairly, yeah. and it changed how he viewed what was fair. I mean, we got Easter this week. I mean, it did not change the way that guy viewed what was fair, what happened to him. So if we consider fairness to be a virtue, if we do, then how hard are we willing to fight for it? And kind of back to my analogy with Tom Cotton, Republicans demanding that Donald Trump be treated fairly is seen as a political exercise. Democrats demanding that Hillary Clinton or Hunter Biden be treated fairly is a political exercise. It will only change when, I think it was John Adams that, I think in his closing argument, he said, may justice be done though the heavens fall. When you value fairness and justice above any result, it will change. But I fear, Ben, we have become a nation of relativists. If it helps me win, I'm okay with it. And, and I just, that is dangerous. I, and, and when you go too far down that road, there is no coming back. Yeah. So the answer to me is to say, okay, I do not want this person to win. I don't. On the merits, I don't want this person to be elected. But I am not going to engage in unfairness to effectuate that outcome. Right now, I think people are sitting there saying, look, we don't want, I'm not sure whether Democrats want Trump to be the nominee or not. You're smarter when it comes to politics than I am. I don't know if they think they can beat him, but they are making even people who were not supportive of Trump think this is vindictive. After 
four years of investigating him, after four different grand jury investigations, after not a word about Hunter Biden, where there does look to be a little probable cause to at least investigate, quite candidly, it just looks vindictive. And so they're going to turn him, of all people, they're going to turn him into a victim. Uh, and then Republicans are going to recalibrate their view of fairness. And, and we'll be in a terrible spot then, Ben. Uh, let's go out on this. You know, you you mentioned that we have Easter coming up. It seems to me that one of the big things that changed politically in my lifetime uh, is that, you know, as recently as the 1990s um, and, and even uh, in the beginning of this century, uh, one of the things that we saw within American communities, within American neighborhoods, was uh, a even within the context of political divisions, there were shared portions of community there. Uh, and that included things that were low connectivity, so things like sports fandom and the like, uh, to things that had you know much deeper uh, sort of connection uh, in terms of church and faith communities. Um, you had people who would disagree politically and have very different bumper stickers, uh, but would also be at the, in the same parking lot together uh, at kids' uh, sports games and that kind of thing. And you had a significant degree of overlap there that prevented your ability from hating somebody who was on the other side. At least it would mitigate it. It's hard to hate somebody if you're also, you know, singing together on Sundays and bowing to worship or if you're exulting after, you know, a, a big win for the local team or if you're bonding over family things and, and, and your kids and the like. But with this great cultural sort that's happened that has only gotten faster and that the pandemic seemed to speed up quite a lot, that really seems to have gone away. And you don't have that connectivity within community uh, to the same degree that you used to, both within our political class and within the voters who support them. That seems to me a fundamental problem with where we are that politics can't solve. But I feel like it's something that has been essential to most of American history to prevent us from warring with each other. You know, you saw the proposed idea of of national divorce gets some credence recently from uh, 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 Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, other commentators have brought it up. And I feel like something like that is only possible in a point where you really can come to uh, hate or resent your neighbor uh, in, a, in a way that we don't really consider to be all that American. Is there any way to get to that point because that, to me, seems essential to the idea of lowering the temperature, of preventing this type of overreach uh, from law enforcement or from other institutions that we ought to be able to trust on both sides of the aisle. I would say three things to that, Ben. I would say, number one, uh, pursue unlikely relationships. I mean, think in your own life right now about the friends, the genuine friendships that you have with people who don't look like you, don't worship like you, and don't vote like you, and how much you have gotten from that relationship. I mean, the very first book I ever wrote was The Power of an Unlikely Friendship. Uh, Tim Scott and I wrote it together. 
uh, grew up very, very differently. We actually have different political views on a number of issues, um, but he will preach my funeral. So the power of pursuing an unlikely friendship, number one, number two, you're from Charleston. So you vividly remember a young man from Lexington, South Carolina, driving for two hours to a historically significant African-American Methodist church and killing people because of the color of their skin. And then after that, the family members of those nine slain Christians said, we forgive you. So I'm sitting here thinking, this guy wanted to start a race war, and he killed people because of the color of their skin, and the family members forgave him, and yet many of us cannot even sit through Thanksgiving with someone who voted differently from us. Mm-hmm. So how about a little grace? I mean, how about a little grace for people who don't look like us, think like us, vote like us, who have a different... I mean, I've got family members who do not a, a, a agree with me politically. I, I would... I will. There's no issue worth me jeopardizing that relationship. I, I prioritize the relationship. And the third thing I would say, Ben, and we don't do it anymore. You do it, but there are others who... You can make a fabulous living not doing it, which is persuasion. Easiest thing in the world is for me to validate or ratify what people already believe. It is much harder to say, look, I love you. You're right on a lot of things. But have you considered? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? I mean, there's almost no persuasion left in politics, Ben. I mean, so (laughs) pursue an unlikely friendship. Quit letting politics ruin everything. You mentioned sports. I mean, ESPN, quite candidly, is like almost like a, a political channel about half the time yep. I watch it now. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned religion. Um, I am sure that it offends when I am asked to speak at churches, which is rarely because the ones that do their background checks don't ask me to speak. <laughs> but the ones that don't, when I go, my number one goal is not to offend anyone who got up that morning and went to church. Making them think is fine. But for me to be trusted with the pulpit of a church and then trying to go out of my way to offend somebody who has a different set of political views, politics ruins everything, I think, Ben. Religion, sports, culture, the award show. When's the last time you watched an award show? Oh, gosh, it's been a long time. <laughs> I mean, I would love to see Halle Berry win awards. I would love to see that. But not at the risk of me having to listen to someone pontificate about a political issue. Yeah. So we've all got to do, I think, a better job of, like, if we don't like politics, why do we let it involved in every other aspect of our lives? So that's a long answer. Unlikely relationships, grace. And then engage in the art of persuasion instead of just simply hanging around people who already believe what you believe. Those three things are what I would try. I think that's a great list of things to try, especially especially in Holy Week. <laughs> Thank you so much, Trey Gowdy, for taking the time to join me today. Ben, God bless you. You take care of yourself. I'll see you soon. More of the Ben Dominich podcast right after this. Look, I think there are a lot of different ways that you can look at the Donald Trump indictment as being a political hinge point in American history. There are things that are different 
that come after the approach used by various partisans, as opposed to what came before. We saw, for instance, uh, the use of impeachment against Bill Clinton over uh, his affair and lying about it with a White House intern, Monica Lewinsky, and how much that changed the way that people had attitudes towards impeachment, even advocating for it and considering it against George W. Bush over Iraq, uh, against Barack Obama uh, over you know a number of different issues, but you know including uh, gun walking over the Mexican border, and of course. Uh, Donald Trump, who had to face impeachment ultimately twice, both times successfully beating it in the Senate, but clearly impeachment became a more political act, something that had been only used in 200 years of presidential history once against uh, President Andrew Johnson uh, during the post-Lincoln era, was now deployed as a political tool. Before that, we had impeachments, of course, of various justices and judges uh, people who had been, you know, frankly, incapable of fulfilling their oaths of office, or in some of the earliest cases, you know, uh, intoxicated people who were unable uh, to actually get to the court in time. So I think this is one of the situations uh, that is similar to that, where you're, you're basically unplugging something that had been held back, a, you know, a dike that was designed to hold back the water rushing through, uh, and what's going to come out of that is a new and I think unprecedented degree of political prosecutions. This is unfortunate for a number of reasons. Uh, one, it has something in common with a lot of those different third world countries that we look down on. People who have said that the American system is now a banana republic, I think are going uh, ahead of the curve on this. But they are uh, suggesting something that is accurate, which is that we are engaged in behavior that we would associate most with governments that were not designed to be long for this world. On the flip side of that, I would say that the degree to which our politicians have operated on the assumption that they could behave in ways that normal Americans could not has been for many decades unprecedented. They have done things that no common American believes that they can get away with, and they have gotten away with them. Obviously, that applies to our current president, Joe Biden. Everything that comes out of his office and that is related to his son, Hunter, uh, is very questionable when it comes to these things. I certainly think that the IRS would have a lot of questions about them if he was not the former vice president, the long-serving senator from Delaware, and someone who, frankly, was viewed as being the leader of his party. At the same time, I do not relish a future in which American prosecutors, whether they are Republican or Democrat, uh, face demands from the populace to go after their political opponents in more and more aggressive ways, ways that are designed to undermine their own offices and they're designed to draw into question whether the rule of law actually applies. Instead, in America, I think we are about to experience what it looks like if you use everything you absolutely can against your political opponents. And what do I mean by that? I mean that for the average American, the idea that you would be caught every time that you are speeding is absurd. You speed all the time. Most Americans do. You are 5 to 10 miles over the speed limit all the time. And regardless whether you are trying to you know, pick up your kids from soccer practice or you are running an errand, 
or you're just not paying attention. And the installation of cameras designed to go after people who engage in such speeding in a major American cities has been revelatory in terms of the amount of income those cities have gotten from people who speed. On the same token, virtually every tax return that could be put in front of the IRS could be audited for some degree. I mean, you know, if you have reported or not reported $500 here or $1,000 there based on uh, the different payments and different things that you claimed as being uh, personal versus business, business expenses or if you took all the right deductions or not, those are the types of things that could be investigated. We all know that on some level. As Americans, we understand these are not the type of process crimes or process issues or process misdemeanors that are being uh, investigated to every nth degree on a constant basis. And yet, when it comes to politicians, people especially who did not build their careers around their careers in politics, people who maybe came from a business world or a different background, the assumptions are not necessarily there that they will have a fine-tooth comb to experience because their political opponents are, are bent on trying to find a way to punish them, not based on what they did or the damage it did, but based on their own political views. I do not relish for any moment defending a man who paid off a porn star to not talk about the relationship that they had, whether it was real or not. At the same time, this is something that historically has been around for a very long time within American politics. It goes back forever. And obviously it goes back many, many times more in political histories around the world. It's something that I think is just understood as being of a certain class of people that they engage in this type of behavior and as abhorrent as we might find it, it's also something that comes with the territory. Would we have the same attitude, for instance, towards founding father Alexander Hamilton, who, you know, if he had not fessed up to his situation, could easily have been accused of doing the same thing paying off or funding the lifestyle of a woman with whom he had had an affair and doing so in such a way that was untoward. It was used against him by no less than Thomas Jefferson and his allies. Now, I'm not going to compare Donald Trump to Alexander Hamilton. I doubt he's ever read anything that Alexander Hamilton ever wrote. But I do think that there's something very untoward about using something like this against a former president of the United States. No matter his situation, no matter the kind of criminal obligations you could technically bring him up on within this space, it seems to me to be a Pandora's box to open up the idea that we would go after a president of the United States, someone who is going to always be on that list of individuals who served our nation as commander-in-chief over a crime so minimal with victims so small, and with issues that seem to be so pedantic and uh, you know form-based process crimes that seem so minimal that we would actually prosecute something like that, it all seems absurd to me. Look, 
former President Trump can argue for himself and his lawyers will obviously argue for him. But just as a general matter, a cultural matter, and as something that understands the importance of the role of the President of the United States in leading our country, I believe that Democrats and DA Alvin Bragg have opened up something now that is going to prove deeply damaging to our nation as a civic matter and increase the likelihood that we will see every president after they leave office have to face charges, criminal charges even, over the decisions they made on the way to becoming president and while they were president. Perhaps you're more optimistic on this point than I am. But the reality is, we are now in a new era of lawfare, escalated by the Democrats in a way that is going to damage our country and our government in ways I believe we are only beginning to learn. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We'll be back with more soon to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.